Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast, your go-to source for insights and strategies in the HVAC, plumbing, and roofing industries. I'm Corey Barrier, here to guide you through transformative approaches to business and mindset. Each episode will explore unique methods, focusing on identifying and addressing the core challenges in your field. Our goal is to equip you and your team with practical solutions that foster growth and success. So whether you're tuning in for the first time or you're a longtime listener, get ready to dive into a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Let's begin our journey to success together. This is the successful life. It's Corey Barrier. Yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn. Apply it to your life. It's your turn. To live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Three, two. Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast. Mike, I'm your host, Corey Barrier, and I am here with Phil Davies. Dude, this guy, so he's the CEO of Flyform HQ. And in addition to that, he's also a vegan. Um, he's been sober for uh, a little while. I don't know how long. We're going to find that out. But I think one of the most interesting things that I've just found out about this gentleman who I admire is that, you know, he's ADHD like me, which I didn't know, but he's also, he has a form of autism, which would have been never guessed in a gazillion years knowing this guy. So, um, Phil, I want you to dive right in and tell, um, the you know, tell everybody listening, you know, about, you know, our prior conversation about the ADHD and the form of autism. I find this so, it's you know, opened my eyes to quite a bit, one, and two, the ADHD part is, is so aligned with myself, and as you know, I've been sober for 10 years, so that also aligns, yeah. and yeah, yeah. I'm getting, I'm going, I'm, I've just decided that I'm going to start eating vegan, so that aligns, <laughs> right, so I don't know how awesome that is yet, I'm, I'm wrapping <laughs> my head around it, but we are doing it, so cool. uh, Phil, I'll let you rock and roll, dude, I cannot wait awesome. to hear this. Well, thanks for thanks for the great intro, and I'm, I'm really honoured to be on the on the podcast as well. And I, uh, I, I, you know, I knew we, we were talking online anyway, but when we met in the states as well, it was an immediate connection. So I'm glad to be here, brother, and uh, it's, it's an honour. Um, but, but yeah, the the autism thing, as I said, was very interesting. So there's a, a specific subtype of autism called PDA, which is pathological demand avoidance. Um, everyone in our kind of or anyone who talks about PDA agrees it's a, it's a terrible name. It makes you sound like you've got some kind of insanity with with you know demands and what have you it's an awful name how it presents is essentially a kind of um anxiety based need for control so if if our anxiety is very low um demands and controls are kind of less relevant but if anxiety kind of gets higher and higher then the need for control is higher um the the, the kicker with it comes in the fact it's actually a bit of a vicious circle because if you're a little bit anxious and then someone's either putting demands on you or, or, or removing the control, it kind of ratchets the anxiety up, which then ratchets up the need for more control and you can't get it. So then the anxiety goes up higher. And this is where we see then meltdowns and explosions. So, so paint a quick picture of a situation that... I'll, that, I'll give that, you an example with a child because that'll yes. be an easy one for me to pitch to you. So, and, and I'll use, this isn't a specific example for me, but I'll give you a generic one. So if, for example, I had a child with PDA 
and I'm getting that. And a lot of PDA kids have trouble getting to school in the morning because it's, it's a perceived demand. So, um, so they, they, they look like school avoiders. We're in actual reality. The, the really strange thing with PDA, by the way, is the fact that even demands you want, they still ratchet up anxiety. So if he wants to go to school or wants to go to a sporting match, even if he wants to do it, the, the, the fact is, is perceived as a demand on him he has to do still causes this anxiety inside. But if, for example, I came down and I'm getting ready for school and I want the kids to eat at the breakfast table, for example, if I come in the room and say, breakfast is ready, up to the table, and I do that on a high anxiety day, that child could turn around to me and say, they could say, fuck you, I'm not going to the table, you know, I don't want to, and I hate you, and melt, melt, melt. And sometimes it could be immediate like that. Whereas if I could, and if I say, no, come on, we're going to the table, you know, then you go head to head, and then you just start pushing each other up. Whereas if I come in the room and I say, hey, breakfast is ready, where would you like to eat this morning? Or would you mind coming to the table, or would you like to eat on the sofa? It immediately diffuses. It gives them the sense of control back. And I can give real-world examples where I've gone into rooms before with, with kids with PDA and said, hey, breakfast at the table. And before I knew, I'd be like, dude, you're eating the goddamn table. This is what we do in this house, you know, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it goes to war. You scream and shout at each other. The child doesn't get to school. You're not in work. And it's hell. And then on, when you learn about the condition, you then go in and say it one day. And all of a sudden, you realize the anxiety is up. And I reframe it quickly. And I say, no problem. You can eat on the sofa. And you just see the, the body language changes, the facial expression changes, the, the serenity comes back. And a lot of the time then, a child will actually turn around and say, it's okay, I'll come to the table. Because they've got this perceived control back and the anxiety has been relieved from them. They don't feel like you're trying to force things on them. Wow. So it's a really interesting... Um, so you, you kind of start to learn the, these different techniques to still try and move towards the goal you need. But it, but like I said, it, it does come down to learning the individual because I know on certain days with certain people, now I can see if they're anxious and they're kind of having an anxious morning or day and you just drop the demand. You don't even bother trying anymore. You just say, no worries, dude. Let's just let's leave that. You leave it there. But on other days where I can see the anxiety is low, you then push a bit harder because you've still got to try and enforce those rules and principles that are going to be present in the real world when they, when they go out to that real world one day. So, yeah, it's a really interesting concept. So when did you figure out your, you said you had a birthday this, this week or last? Uh, this week and my birthday was Monday. Yeah. So oh, my birthday, well, happy birthday. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my birthday Monday, I found out my diagnosis was last May. So about 18 months ago. Oh, wow. So um, I had a family member that was having some, some challenges that we were seeing um, and trying to manage with, with kind of behavioral responses. And it was a long old journey, a couple of years of trying to figure out, get to the bottom of it lots of misdiagnosis with this condition it's actually a very common part of the profile is to be misdiagnosed with other things um and as we were going through that process all of a sudden the similarities started to pop up the thing between things i did now how i felt um and how this family member behaved and felt and all of a sudden the dots started to join um and the assessors who were in the room were kind of like they, they could tell you know um because they're trained for that and i think there would be a, the really big component of that which was the the really interesting bit was until I got sober, um, which was three and a half years, by the way, so it's uh, three and a half years sober. Until I got sober, there was never any inclination of anything because the constant kind of substances in my body, and not that I was uh, using substances on a daily basis. At the, at the end, it was a problem. But it, it, say for the first, from 18 to age 28, for example, sure. I would I would drink every night or smoke weed every night, but it would be an evening thing. So I'd go to work every day, I'd do my job, and then I'd come home and I'd hit the pub and that was, was, that, right. that, that was our culture, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was what yeah. we did. It was functioning. Um, 
but 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 that was always in my system so even when you're sober the next day you're out but there's a there's a, it's having an effect on your vibration on your on your emotions on your hormones in your body all those things so i think what actually was happening for all those years was that constant level i had that was off normal had always allowed me to ultimately that substance in my body would be reducing my anxiety a little bit it'd be making me a bit fit in a little bit better and chat a bit more so it wasn't until i actually went sober and then i went through this long process of, of that um when i got sober six months later i actually came off i was on antidepressant medication for 10 years so big doses of prozac beta blockers valium all these kind of medications and i actually came off all of those as well so big emotional chemical change in my body and it wasn't until all that got flushed out to then all of a sudden I felt different and I was like like things that didn't used to bother me were bothering me and my personality was a bit more different I was maybe a bit more square on some days at the start and these kind of things and I was putting it all down to the sobriety I was thinking it must be because I don't drink anymore and I'm trying to deal with this not drinking and not using drugs and these things um and obviously as that time kind of kept ticking away then and then working with the family member I saw I was actually thinking hang on I'm doing those behaviors and when I used to drink and use I didn't no one I didn't recognize those behaviors and neither did anyone else because I was kind of blending in through the use of substances. Sure. When you take those out of the way, all of a sudden I was left with these other behaviors. And I was a bit like, oh. And the way it would present to me and how I noticed would be things like, there would be sometimes very basic things that I would get very upset about. So, um, you know, maybe I've asked, uh, like, as I'm, I'm using this as an example. It's not a real one. My ex-wife was, and I've come in the house and I've said to my ex-wife, you know, five times in a row, I've said, can we keep the keys? over there please because i'm trying to keep the house organized and, you know and you come in another day and they're, they're back over there and most days you just deal with it you move the keys again and every now and going to be a day where i would just lose my shit i'd be like for fuck's sake I'm, we're having these conversations and in my head i'm like black and white so i'm like we had the conversation yesterday i asked you to do a and you agreed and then i come in today and it's dead like why but every now and going to be this explosive reaction and i was thinking to myself after i'm thinking dude that was a bit extreme like why am i why why am i not able to control my emotional response to something that's not a, a, a big big deal you know um and that was how i started digging a bit deeper for myself i was a bit like well why am i having these emotional responses all the time so i don't want to i don't want to shout about those things i don't want to have that reaction so why why is it happening um and that was kind of the the channel in then to, to dig in deeper and deeper until until i got to that point so just out of curiosity you know how what how many people, I don't know, I don't know the right way to ask the question, mm. but like, yeah. how many people do you think, I'm sure you have done quite a bit of studying on this subject. Yeah. How many people are living with this PDA, mm. so to speak, that have absolutely no idea like you? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot. And I think the ADHD stuff too. And I know, you know, there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, you know, there's ADHD. Some people even say ADHD doesn't exist. You know, they say there's kids in front of TVs. And of course there's elements of our environmental conditions, but there's a hell of a lot of science behind these conditions, a hell of a lot. Um, and I'll tell you what the scary thing for me was, was, and it'll be the sim similar to yourself, that was when I got assessed, the lady said to me, um, there was like an IQ test and my IQ was, was pretty high. And she said, the thing that saved me is the IQ. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, because obviously she knew I'd been in a lot of trouble with, with the law and with other things as well. And she said, I bet you've had to talk yourself out of more situations than you can remember. And I said, you're damn right I have, you know, I could talk my way out of a lot. I still got in a lot of trouble, but the things I got out of and the, and the level of trouble I got into relative to what I did was, and even with, if you think of jobs, like there were so many things I did in corporate jobs, which should have been trackable offenses, but I managed to, you know, 
not not conniving, he told me way out, but I'd, I'd emotion. I'd say, look, dude, this is how I felt. I didn't know why I did that, blah, 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 blah. And I'd, I'd get another chance. And what she said was, if people have the ADHD or the autism or, or the combination of whichever of those conditions, because ADHD, you know, with the kind of spontaneous, spontaneous behaviors, we be doing the impulsive things and, yes. you know, it causes people a lot of uh, problems in society kind of conditions. And if they don't have the other side of the fence, the intelligence to talk their way through it or explain what's going on, they get fired or even worse, they're younger. They're the kids that get kicked out of class in school. Like I got kicked out of all my classes, in school, but they get kicked out. They can't talk their way back in like I did. Because I could get kicked out of class all day and go past the test and be top of the school still. They couldn't. So they get kicked out of class. They get labeled bad kids. Then they think they're bad kids. And they go do start hanging around with the other kids who are doing the drugs, doing the crime. Then they either become criminals or they become homeless. And she said to me, a huge proportion of homeless and people who were kind of dying on the streets are actually people with undiagnosed ADHD and potentially these autism conditions and it it broke my fucking heart I'm emotional thinking about it now because I was like that's a sad thing to think about where you can see that pattern where they're doing those things that maybe we did but they can't quite get out of that trouble in the same way and maybe their home environments are bad as well and they're in that system and it was a real uh, yeah so that's definitely an avenue that I want to over the next few years I want to work in that, that space and try and dig into these people so you can see how many how much of those conditions still affected them and things you know because it was a real uh yeah it hit me when she said that she said most people with the severity of your adhd was and the other stuff you got with it she said unless most people would have ended up dead or in prison or homeless and, and i nearly ended up all, all three of those at any given point really um but i obviously kept managing to scrape my way out and maintain the, the way i did it's interesting that you you know that you say that because when you said, and you said at the beginning, you said, you know, I think you'll probably be able to identify with a lot of these mm. and every one that you named. I can, yeah. I, I remember exact situations where yeah. that was absolutely, I should have either been homeless. I should have been dead. I can't tell you how many times yep. I should <laughs> have been in prison. I don't know how many times, like, There's things that I've been able to walk away from that's just not normal. And and, and it's not because I'm special. I didn't, I never, I didn't really know why I thought because I could just talk, talk my way out of it. I could, I could, you know, I had a, a a way of, of of dealing with people that I, I really didn't know. I just knew there was, I guess I would call it street smart, right? There's, I just thought there was something about me that was, which doesn't make very much sense because I grew up in, you know, like a country club. So like, I don't know, you don't get really street smart from growing up on a golf course with, you know. So you kind of do. It's weird. I know what you're saying. Like, because you've got that, with the condition it does, it gives you this different edge to the people don't don't have. It's funny. That is. It gives you a speed. So, uh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, the next thing that I really, on the same similar subject, and and we'll move on in a second, but this is just fascinating. I want you to tell me again the age group i'm 41 yeah. you said you just turned 35 uh 36 uh, i was yeah 36, 36 Monday, okay. yeah. so yeah. tell us tell 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 the people listening what you told yeah. me about the adhd and maturity and yeah so so some of the recent um findings are kind of talking about emotional maturity um and what they're kind of saying is that neurotypical males are typically emotionally mature between 12 and 18 years old so when they go through that i guess that typical puberty phase and coming you know becoming a man their brains are emotionally maturing at the same time so they get a, at least like a baseline level of emotional maturity that's a normal um, 
normal yeah, guy. Yeah, so normal guy, that's how it kind of looks. Yeah, 12, okay. 13. And then um, ADHD males have, with the science at the moment is showing more around 28 to 35. They have this emotional maturity spirit. Um, Literally. Again, 10-year difference in from where it ends for a no, another a normal person yeah. to where it begins for a person like you and me. Yeah, and if you think then of the, especially, you know, this was very true for me, but I, I think a lot of people is, if you think of how much more turbulent relationships are for young males with ADHD, like in those 20s and stuff in terms of jealousy and arguments and uh, whatever those emotional factors may be, which all affected my relationship, um, it makes perfect sense and funny enough um i was i'm in an adhd group on facebook for entrepreneurs i'll send you the link actually later and i did an interview with them and someone posted this week saying do you think um do any of you guys keep seeing a pattern where adhd entrepreneurs are late bloomers and i was like absolutely because for me it was like I, was, I did really well in corporate world kind of on paper to what people thought of but not by what i knew i was capable of but once i kind of hit 30 and I hit that emotional maturity and sobriety. And then, as you know, in, in four years now, I've built this, this kind of business of eight figures in revenue next year. Um, and out of seemingly out of nowhere, it looks like nowhere, but it obviously I've had all the kind of build up in the background, but didn't execute. But I am seeing a lot more people with this kind of condition who hit more 30s and then the 40s. And then they start to boom because they've, they've managed to level off they've leveled off the kind of the negative side of the condition and then they get the benefit of the positive side of the condition, which is being sometimes a lot faster than other people, a lot quicker to get their solutions, a lot more creative, a lot more energetic, you know, like I harness those bits now as best I can and I get to drop the bad bits. So it gives me kind of an advantage now, not a disadvantage. Sure. So, um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so, you know, I think about lots of times I think about all the things that, that probably you have gone through and that, that I've gone through in my life. And I think about, you know, I, I burned a barn down when I was 10 years old on the golf course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've been caught with, with four ounces of cocaine and didn't go to prison. So that's a great wow. example. You know, I've had three yep. DUIs. Yep. Um, I've yep. talked myself out of more than three. This episode of the Successful Life Podcast is brought to you by House Call Pro. Whether you're looking to streamline your operations, reduce paperwork, or boost revenue, House Call Pro is your all-in-one business solution. Transform your business today with essential tools and support designed to drive efficiency and deliver exceptional customer service. To learn more, click the link in the show notes. Yeah, because um, it's that impulsive behavior. It was just like the rule book goes, and you, you yeah, yeah, like it doesn't apply it. to me, right? Yeah. That's that's how yeah, we yeah. see it. Um, yeah. But I look at all those things, and, and I've talked about this before, but I've never linked it to this. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I just take it. I, I look at all these things, and I think, well, those are what have made me the person I am today. And that is, you have just really um, solidified that fact. That, yeah. that is exactly what it's done. And, and, and I didn't realize the immaturity part. It's a huge, when I found that out, I was like, wow, it made so much sense. It so makes much. so and, much. And she also said it, that's what ties into the kind of slowing down as in, she said between like 30 and 40 for like the ADHD male, she said, by the time she said to me, by the time you hit 40, she said, you're going to be on a totally different bandwidth and not in a negative way. Like you don't tend to lose the capacity to still go, but the, 
the impulsivity, the kind of recklessness and all the kind of that speed really tones itself right down apparently. Um, which I think then allows people like you and I to grow into the other skills <laughs> and, and sure. actually get more focus, a bit more harness things and a bit more uh, intent, you know, a bit more intention in what we do. Right. Those kind of things that come into play. So, yeah. Without a doubt. Um, so let's talk. So you mentioned your company. Okay. So yeah, cool. Took, let's die. Let's de- I mean, let's definitely dive into that, dude. I can't sure, wait. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Flyform. So we're a consultancy. So we do um, we do tech consultancy. So there's a particular product we specialize in, um, which is kind of serving major enterprises around the world. Um, it's not our product, but we've got a team of consultants. So we're coming up to about 50 heads by the end of the year. Um, and we basically go into these major organizations. They're all the kind of top top firms in the world. You know, people even like like Disney, Apple, those kind of companies are kind of uh, using the product. Um, and we'll go in. We'll talk to them about the business challenges they've got we'll kind of get a big whiteboard up, we'll draw out these challenges, these processes, and then we'll basically take this piece of software and we'll tailor it and tweak it and build custom stuff on top of it to, to solve those challenges and also maybe automate them. So an example being, um, I use a Disney example, like a Disneyland when the popcorn machine, popcorn is really high margin, so Disney love keeping those machines full. When it gets low, it'll send an automatic message to our product and say, popcorn's low, machine 25, and it'll tell a field engineer to go to the machine and, and fill it up and he'll go do it, you know? Um, and it, there's one example, or it could be someone new joins an organization and rather than someone's got to go and create an account and order a laptop, you, you know, you click a simple button and the machine goes and orders a laptop and deploys the software and sets the accounts up and all automated basically. So it's basically trying to give control and efficiencies to, to companies. Um, we work a lot in big enterprises, big government sectors and, Wow. But, uh, so it's a growing space. It's been good. We've grown, we grow at least, we'll grow another hundred percent this year. Um, we'll grow a hundred percent next year. We've got our kind of plan for that already. Um, we're going to keep doing that, but we've got a lot more stuff we're going to bring into the mix over the next few years, but that's very much the core of the business right now. That's really cool. So, uh, so how do you, you know, if you've grown from, you know, an idea, so to yep. speak, uh, mm. in four years to an eight figure, didn't you say eight figures? Yep. That's a pretty massive, I mean, how, how do you, that, I mean, it's a massive growth in yeah. that short amount of time. How have you, I mean, because we think similarly, because my God, we're very <laughs> similar people. Yeah. How do you, okay, so a lot of people sabotage their success, right? They, yeah. they, they because they, if they get too successful, they screw it up. How yeah. have you, and, and this is speaking to the people listening, how have you harnessed, so to yeah. speak, that a massive amount of growth mm. without messing up, I guess, for the lack of better words? Dude, we mess up a lot. Like, we've messed up a lot on the way. So but I've learned that those mess ups are just the best things that ever happened to me. I look at them every time we have a big mistake now. Like, we had a big one this year. We had this big kind of um, issue in our accounting, which was a real, a real stinger. And it was painful, but what I say to the team all the time is, I'm glad it happened this year when you're going to do like five or 10 million in revenue versus happening in three years when you're doing a hundred million in revenue, because it's going to cost a hell of a lot more to fix. Oh, um, so now whenever I look back at those little problems that we face and those mess ups, I'm always thinking that was a gift because I made that mistake and it cost me 20 grand or 50 grand, not 2 million or 5 million. And that's a big one for me. So I just tell everyone, I mean, um, Marcus Anderson is in the accelerator as well. Yeah. He's, my, oh, yeah. he's my coach. 
Um, and he talks about you know, his book, The Gift of Adversity. So now whenever we're having an adversity, I'm telling everyone there's a gift in here somewhere. Let's, let's find that gift because um, you, you, go, you grow through mistakes. The mistakes will keep coming. If, if you're not, you know, Tony Robbins talks about the problem cycle. Um, and he basically says, if you're not having problems, you're not growing because through growth comes problems. And the way we address problems is, are they kind of, um, are they normal problems? Are they kind of abnormal or are they, pathological problems which is something that tony teaches and what he kind of says is a normal problem is for example if there's a baby that's six months old um and it can't walk to go and get something is that normal yeah it's a problem but it's a normal problem if there's a five-year-old child that can't do it maybe that's an abnormal problem if you're an adult and you've had a big accident and you can't move this could kill you it's a pathological problem and basically we triage our problems so okay we've got a problem okay is it is it going to kill the company if yes we let's prioritize fixing that one if it's abnormal, a bit lower, and if it's normal, it's just part of the process. But you'll fix those problems, and the whole point of the problem cycle is you fix the problem, and you go back around, and you get a new one. And right. usually the problems get bigger and different and in different areas than you're used to because of the nature of growing the business. So the sooner you just learn to embrace the fact that problems are going to keep coming, we're going to keep fixing them, and bigger ones are going to come, and then you realize actually that the bigger problems I'm getting probably means the better I'm doing and the, the bigger I'm growing, the sooner That's the mind sure. can, can adjust it. That's right. So uh, I'm glad you brought up Tony. Uh, so how long, when did you start on this personal development journey? Is, I, yeah. is, it, is it safe to assume it was with Tony? It was, yeah. So um, good question. Uh, not very long, actually, which is, which is I actually keep doubting myself and rechecking my dates. But basically, the first Tony event I did was January 2018. So it was last January. So what, and I'll tell you the path I got there because it actually ties into the self-sabotage kind of journey you asked about uh, in a way, which was, so we set the fly form 2015. We did no business. We were dormant. Um, 2016, we did like 100K. And by the way, it was, it was a side hustle. So I didn't realize it was a side hustle at the time, but I set up the business alongside, I was kind of out consulting as an individual, trying to get sober, get my meds and pay my mortgage. And I had saw this gap in the market. We set up the company. We had the idea. I, I approached a friend of mine. I said, look, I got this idea. I'm going to do this. I'm going to need you to kind of support me because I'm, I'm a mess. And, and I love this guy to pieces. Um, so we set it up and we kind of did 100K in, the, in 2016 as a side gig. The next year we did 1.1 million. The next year we doubled again to 2.5 and it, you know, it exploded. But in 2017, when we did that first million, that was the year that psychologically I wasn't ready for because we went from 100K to a million. I wasn't prepared for all the stuff like Andy and Ed teach us about being mentally tough in the business. I kind of thought I was, but what I got toward the end of the year was this huge case of imposter syndrome. So I don't know if you've heard of that phrase. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. And I hadn't heard of it at the time. So I was actually, I was thinking, how the hell am I going to do another million next year? I'm like, I've won a lot of my work was with one. We won one major account and it was a big chunk of our revenue. So all, I had all the fears going. I was like, well, if they don't renew, and if that happens and then I don't have another client and where am I going to get this from? And, I, and we had all these delivery problems or project problems, all this kind of stuff. We did a great job with the client. They were, you know, they were made, they were a big reference of ours, but on the, on the inside, it was like, holy shit, you know, plugging all these holes. And I was, I was, it, it broke me, dude. I was, I remember sat at home at my laptop like this and I just, I was just crying. I was staring at this proposal. I was just crying and crying. I was like, I was ruined. So I'm Googling phrases like, like entrepreneur, not, uh, you know, can't really make it or entrepreneur feels like a fraud, all these kind of phrases. I was trying to, I was trying to verbalize how I was feeling about the sphere. 
and I found this article about imposter syndrome, and I was like, oh, what the hell is this? And I started reading, I was thinking, fuck, this is exactly what I'm, this is exactly what I'm feeling like. I feel like this fraud, this imposter, like I shouldn't be here, like I should, like this isn't really for me. And all those messages that a lot of us carry around our self-belief, you know? Yes. So in the build-up to that, that kind of that minor, you know, wobble, um, through the year, probably through the 18 months prior to that, my business partner had put me on to people like um, Bob Proctor, and then I kind of found Tony Robbins. But I'd been doing a lot of, I'd been watching some YouTube stuff and listening to like motivational things on, on when I was driving. Um, I hadn't gone all in yet, and with the imposter syndrome thing as well. And then I found a Tony Robbins link related to it, and I'd been listening to Tony, and I was becoming obsessed with Tony. Um, and I just picked up the phone with one of those. He has these coaching calls. They're really their sales calls with a coach, you know. Um, so I, I do this call the next week. And this is kind of like December or end of November, early December. And the dude from the state is like, well, look, we can set you up with a coach, but you should really come to Business Mastery, which is Tony's five-day business course. And I'm like, he said, but the problem is it's in Florida and it's in, it's in January. It's in a month's time. I'd never been to America before then, by the way. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. Book me the ticket. I, I, need, to, I need to go. So book the ticket booked the flight jumped on the plane and um honestly that that changed my life like i got there and i completely blew my limiting beliefs out of the water with tony that he he changed he changed my mind he reprogrammed me to a gladiator you know um and i came back and the funny thing was i came back from there we did a million that year um and i printed off kind of revenue 2018 2 million and i just stuck it on the wall next to my 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 pc in the house my office and um and even then doing it i was kind of still feeling like a fraud i was thinking well i kind of want to believe but i don't really know how i'm going to do it and i don't really believe it and i thought people are going to think i'm stupid putting this up and am i kind of tricking everyone and within i would say within a week of getting back and sticking up to my wall another client came in which was basically another seven figure deal um from nowhere no marketing activity no sales obviously we had to then go in and do the hard you know convince them we're good enough we're big enough we've got the right attitude but I mean, I can't ever explain those things to you apart from the universe and the gift of God kind of giving me that grace to, to have a shot at it, you know? And I fully believe now that it, it did do that for me. I believe that that happened to give me a chance to go and serve now and things like this and, and to do that greater good. But that was where that came from. So I ended up doing Tony in January, um, Business Mastery 1. I then did UPW in April. I did Business Mastery 2 in Rotterdam in June. At the same time, I'm kind of finding Andy and Ed. So then, you know, that kind of went through that year. Then I joined the Accelerator. I did the Accelerator for a year. And then obviously this year joined the Syndicate. But I mean, since that first Tony event, I just went, I mean, I was pretty, listened to a lot of stuff anyway up to that point. But from that point on, it was relentless, like cold showers every day, you know, gratitude lists in the morning, podcasts at every opportunity, um, you know, books, content, 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 networking. I created a circle of people from the first event who we're still dear friends now. In fact, I brought one of them to the, the recent RTA live event, you know, so we, he came to Rotterdam for Tony. We, we've done a lot, but so all the tips that he gave, I just took them all and I just put them all in place immediately. Um, and that's then what's carried me then through again, this company from that first year of imposter syndrome to now where I don't have any imposter syndrome. I know we're going to like this company's we're, we're going to be a nine figure company. So we a big company, you know, um, and, and, and bigger to be honest. And I have no doubts because I'm very tough up here now. Even though I have my days still where I, I still have days where I cry, I still have, I have anxiety earlier. Actually, first time for a little while, only 10 minutes, which was nice. That still happens, but I know I'm strong enough now to pull back, reset the button. Um, but that personal development world has, has saved my life and definitely propelled me to, to where I am, you know? 
Dude, I, you know, I, okay. So the end, and the reason I, I wanted to know that is because in, in July, I'll just tell you really quickly, our stories, God, it is unreal how similar. So in July, my wife handed me a book that said, uh, okay, fine. I'm grateful. And it's a journal because, okay. because I was, I owned a, a hormone replacement clinic at the time. Okay. Yeah. And so we did testosterone. It was a medical spot, but whatever. Yeah. And so I was not, um, so I, I was just, I was really negative. I was just a negative person. And yes, I've been sober for a long time, but, uh, regardless, I was still super negative. Of course. And I, at that point when she did that, I started listening, I watched the secret and then I started listening to Tony and like yeah. you, I would get up and I would listen to Tony probably three or four hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, fast forward to October um, I was supposed to go, I was supposed to buy my ticket for UPW, his, my okay. first event, which was in November of last year, 2018. Yeah. And so October 1st, I found out that my partner, uh, was, he wanted me out of the business and it's a long story. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't really, there's no point in me getting into it, but the reality of what I found out about myself after that is, so my wife bought me the ticket. I didn't yeah. get paid that day. So I didn't have the money to buy the ticket. She bought the ticket. It was very emotional. It was uh, one of the nicest things yeah. anybody's ever done. That's and I went to that event beautiful. and like you, I, that event changed my life. Dude. <laughs> and, and I came back and I went through thinking grow rich three times. Okay. And because Tony says, if there's yeah, one book I would book. recommend, that's the one. So I listen yeah, and yeah, I listen yeah to everything he said. Yeah. And so for this, you know, for the last year, I've been, I went, got my NLP certification. Uh, I didn't really know what direction I was going. I just know, I just knew there was something bigger out there for me, but I yep. couldn't really. So this whole year I've been figuring out where I'm going, what I'm doing. And, and not, I'm not going to lie. There has been some major emotional, emotional times. Yeah. Um, but I owe all of that to really Tony and, and his guidance through. Yeah, for sure. And so, um, and so I went and crewed in January or no, was it January, March? I don't remember what month it was yeah. sometime <laughs> earlier this year. And, yeah. and that was amazing. And then coming to RTA live was when the switch really happened because that I yeah. told myself prior to coming, I said, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to, I don't have anything to offer. Like, I don't, I, I don't even know what to call myself because I've got all these skills, but like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And so I had to convince myself that, or I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to go there with no expectations, but let me back up for a moment. So the, how I got there is I, the tickets went on sale to the accelerator and I told my wife and she said, well, would I figure out the money 30 seconds after that? Leanne Saunders FaceTime me. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't do FaceTime. So I didn't answer the phone. And so she texted my wife and said, Hey, you need to answer the phone. So I answered it. And, 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 and she said, she said, Corey, I want you to, um, I want you to be my guest to, no the, way. to the event. And so amazing. It's such I, lovely people. I, I mean, it, I bawled. 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, like I, that. I just, I can't even tell you. And from that, from that moment, my life has done a complete 360 and we're talking weeks ago. Yeah. Like my life has just changed so That's much. Amazing, dude. And so, and so that, you know, kind of leads us to why, where we are here, but it's unreal. The similarities of, uh, of how our journeys are the same. Now, let me ask you getting, so I'm so happy that happened for you, by the way, bro. I'm really happy. And, and I love Leanne as well. She's she's amazing. So she is. And Chris is such yeah. a great dude. And he like, is, you know, yeah. they're just and she didn't have to do that. Of course not. It's just she nice, did. man. She said, I couldn't think of anybody else. You deserved it, dude. I was supposed to be there. And exactly. I journaled. And I journaled yeah. about being there. I knew yeah, I was yeah. going, but I just didn't Realization. know. How. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um are you, are, so what do you do to stay sober? Let me ask you that really quick. Yeah. Um, so I actually started my journey kind of through AA and CA type groups. So Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, these kind yeah. of, you know, the, the 12 step programs. Um, and they were, and I, I do promote those to everyone, by the way. I think 12 step is a good program for a lot of people. Um, for me, I needed more, I think, because my, my desire to not conform and, and, you know, to find my own way is very strong, which is probably, you know, a, a gift and a, a curse. Um, but I actually did a lot of CBT therapy, so that was the game changer in my life. So, what is it? I actually, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So okay, yeah, talk, yeah, like talk therapy. But um, I had talk therapy with an addiction specialist, and he was a very practical therapist. So rather than it being sessions about let's dig into your childhood and get the patterns right away, it was what's kind of fucking you up this week, and what can we do to help you not feel so much in a knot about that particular activity sure um and for me that was the game changer because i'd been trying to be sober for about a year before that where i'd kind of gone in and done three four five months since and the first time i actually thought i would i thought it was like i cured myself i was like cool i don't have an addiction anymore i can have a couple of drinks and that didn't work um as, as we know <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> um so i kind of went around the house a little bit then with the aaca program and then i thought i need to try something else as well as this and i got this this therapist guy I'd been sober since I met him. So I, I got sober the week before I had the appointment. I actually missed the first appointment because I'd been on a, my final, my final uh, frontier trip, <laughs> um, was the night before. So I went in the week later, um, since I met him, been sober since, but he was a game changer for me because he taught me, first of all, I could talk around those, those week to week problems. I had, a, I had somewhere to go and kind of offload a little bit, but also get practical advice on my relationship, my relationship at work, things that would bother me, upset me, and actually, he would give me practical tips on how to reframe, how to say things, how to try and sort. Sure. But he also gave me the edge around the medication because he was one of these uh, therapists that he's not pro-medication. He's not anti-medication for the right people, but he's not someone who just wants to write you scripts every day. So right. when I was there, he kind of said, he said, Doug, you've been on this medication a long time. Do you feel like it's doing anything for you? He said, because you seem great to me. And I don't know if you, you know, after just a few months, um, you know, he was saying how great I seem. So I was like, well, I thought I'm on this stuff for life. Literally, this is eight years, 10 years in at this point, you know, whatever. Um, and he said, look, I think you could, if you wanted to, you could probably try and start giving yourself a program to reduce this down and see how that goes. And obviously, as we do with everything in our way, I was like, okay, mission accepted. Right. Um, so I spent about three months tapering the med down super slowly. So every couple of weeks, I dropped the dose like a micro bit and a micro bit and a micro bit. Um, but I never thought I'd be able to do that. And that, again, was that was huge to me. I mean, that getting off that stuff, by the way, for me personally, was as hard, if not harder, than alcohol and cocaine. It was 
a hugely traumatic experience. I was having seizures and like brain fits and stuff coming off Prozac. Um, and then I think I'd been on it so long that my emotions had been so numbed and changed yeah. by the medication. I didn't think they had, uh, which is ironic looking back. But when I came off it, dude, I cried every day for about six, 12 months, like sometimes five times a day. My emotions were just shot. My nerves were shot. Um, coming off all of that stuff together that year, I was sleeping like 12 hours a day, every day, seven days a week. The only reason I was getting up in the first place was because I had to keep going to do the job to make sure I kept the mortgage and the kids and kind of, you know, maintain everyone. Um, and my, my, my wife at the time was, um, you know, huge benefit. You know, she was hugely supportive and she just ran the house, ran the kids. And I, you know, she knew I needed to just focus on getting to work and again, home and sleeping because my body and my mind were going through this huge repair phase. Um, but all that was due to that therapist. So having him to guide me through that was a, a game changer. But then I think what kept me then going was, A, I kept working with him. So I didn't need to, he was very good because he wasn't like, look, I don't want you to come here every week for the rest of your life. I want you to come when you need to come. And if you're better, don't, don't come. Just come, when, come back when you need to. So, so I, would, I did it for six months or whatever, 12 months at the start. And then I haven't seen him now for another six months, you know? Um, and if I started to get really twitchy now, if I started to feel like something's falling a little bit apart, because I'm very self-aware now, I very much know the signs. And if I start to start getting thoughts about feeling like I want to drink a lot, or I start to feel a little bit more run down or a bit more irritable, whatever those signals are, I'll go and get booked in. I'll go and, because I know something's happening. And I see the sign. I'm like, I'm not going to let you get me. Um, so that's kind of the one part. And the other part then is this self-development world. So what I did was took an addictive personality, which had been locked onto things that were destructive to me, and I applied them to constructive things. So growing my business, being a good dad, being obsessed with self-development, and my physical fitness. Like you see my photos, I lost like 70 pounds now or more, I don't even know. Um, I just turned all that kind of addictive, obsessive behavior into positive things all the time, and I just attacked the shit out of them. Um, and I still do. So like my days now are very busy. You know, I'm in here. I trained this morning to send drive hard. I'm in the office. My, I had my kids from the school into the office, all day meetings. I'll go home and train. I've got a dinner tonight with, with business. And it's just a relentless cycle that keeps me, it keeps me in that lane, you know? Um, so let me ask you, um, <clears throat> the reason I ask you about your journey being sober is because, um, you know, around last July, ironically, I stopped going to yeah. AA and, yeah. and, as you know, from being in the program, the, uh, the understanding is, is pretty much you're fucked. Yeah. If, if you leave, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much you're <laughs> yeah. going to fail if you leave. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I believe, uh, and I'm starting to speak out a little bit more about this because of, you know, there was a fear, uh, yes. you know, about, you know, I think AA absolutely helped me get to where I am, but I do believe that there's a time that you can, that, that you need to, there, there's a mindset that should shift or needs yeah. to shift, or I hope shifts for other people that gets them to a place where they're ready to grow out of AA. They're ready to grow out of CA. They're ready to look into something a little bit higher, a little bit more um, I agree. You know, and so a lot it's of my, people... It's exactly my problem with AMTA too, and that's why I struggle to stay there because I think for me, it's very it's a very difficult when I fight myself on it all the time because the big thing for AA is obviously giving back because when I'm there, I'm helping the newbies get sober and I'm showing them what can be the art of the possible and 
that was a big part for me but it also for me it was very challenging mentally and on my soul to be a lot of people like I say they make their lives about AA so you're in the program you go X times a week you communicate and hang out with the AA people and if you leave the program oh you're never going to make it and those kind of mentalities and for me I was like because I'm like you and I'm RFA it's like I'm sitting there thinking no dude like I get that we've got to hand control over to God and the universe and whatever you believe in is up there but I'm still in control of the bit that I've got and I can decide to be driven and successful and this and that and that where a lot of the guys in there were like well I can't I can't go and get a better job God doesn't want me to have one or you know I'm in the program and it's very tough and I think you're right I think ideally people should be able to grow through that program you know you'll always need people there to mentor those young ones but I think it's a good thing if people can get out and have a life outside of it like I still go to meetings now but I'll tend to because of my travel schedule I'll pick up a meeting a month or here and there and I'll and there might be I do a meeting in London next week and then this week I might be a local meeting when I was in Vegas um earlier this year I went and did a meeting in Vegas because I was having a bit of a time thinking about it out there um you know so and I still do that and I like to interact with those people but I don't make it part of my it's not a something I have to religiously do three times a week and, and live in that mindset anymore you know so what do you think when you when I say subconsciously what do you think it's doing to our minds when I stand up and say, I am an alcoholic yeah. over yeah. and over? Someone said that to me the other day. I can't remember who I was talking to and I had a similar conversation. And I think there's a lot of power behind saying that in terms of the power negatively on you to keep repeating that. Yes. So like, even when I was in the program um, regularly, I actually got to the point where I would say, my name is Phil and I'm a gratefully recovered addict because I didn't want to sit there and say, my name is Phil and I'm an addict every week because I do, I do believe uh, what they say around it being uh, a disease. I do think there is something in certain people's genes where if you put half a, a lager or a beer in me, dude, shit's going to get real wild real quick. Like there's a switch is going to go and it doesn't have a normal reaction on me in a lot of cases, you know? Sure. And I think that's genetic for whatever reason. I don't care what the reason is, it's, it's in there. But I also don't believe that I need to stand up and, and let that be my label and control me every week in terms of, I'm happy for the label to hold it to tell people my journey so I can help them. Sure. But I don't need to sit there and make a sob story about my so that I'm this addict and blah, blah, blah every week and have that battle. It's, it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It really you know, I think it's good to, I think at the start it's good to say it because you're going to acceptance of I've got this problem and, and I'm accepting I've got this problem and I'm publicly saying it and I'm going to do it. But there should be a way where that changes to a better phrase at some point. You know, like I'm a gratefully recovered addict or I'm a, whatever the, the thing could be sure yeah. sure so i was talking you know i've been thinking this way for a, a while but uh you know i spoke to a friend of mine one of my best friends uh and he's been in the program for 18 or 19 years and he was like you know i was i had a whole facebook post i was going to do about it and he was like Corey, he was like what i right. said do whatever you want but the backlash that you're going to get from people is going to be greater than you are anticipating. And so yeah. it, 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 it prevented me from posting that day, but more and more I've thought about it. And the more I've learned about my mind and your mind and, and yeah. how our brains work and the words and, and the neurolinguistics. Uh, I had this conversation with a doctor that, and she's a doctor of divinity, divinity, long story. Uh, I'll send you her link. She's pretty, yeah, cool. It's pretty cool. So she, I asked her the same question. Was she, you know, what she, what if there was an outlet for people outside of AA that are like you and I, 
and are like her that are like they, there's a place or there's a thing or there's a group or there's something because there's not a lot really there's nothing no, 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 there's not. so i am in the process of developing that awesome and That's so i i think i don't think it will change the game for a lot of people because the as you know the percentage of people that stay sober yeah. is not very high. It's not good. And, and it's not for AI either. It's not when you look into the actual data. It's, no. Uh, lots of stories around it. And right. I think you're right because you can see such a difference even in the AA groups. And I see this in Britain and I saw it in some really funny ways, right? Because where I live in Wales, which is kind of economically weak compared to, say, London. So we're in an economically deprived area. Okay. So you'll go there there'll be lots of like people who don't have money and maybe they've been homeless and drugs and this, that, and the other. Um, and it's that kind of problem mindset. And you go into London, and if I go to a meeting in Chelsea, an AA meeting, and it's like the guy's crying because his Ferrari's being repossessed, and the girl, seriously, dude. And you just see these, even in those levels, you see different, so, so a, a big, broad spectrum of people. But you say there needs to be another level again for where people have got kind of, you know, growth mindset and RSA mindset where they can go and be with people themselves and actually people who can say, hey, we, we've, we've been there and we can still do all this and, and everything's going to be okay look you know and it's a nice yes. message for people to see and we've got that driving time and you still don't feel like you're quite in the right place so yeah that's yeah. awesome dude absolutely I look forward to watching that yeah it's going to be grow, really man. it's going to be really cool so uh what made you decide to go vegan just out of curiosity yeah so, so for me, being vegan was, was all about the animals. So I was raised vegetarian. So my mum was kind of uh, an ethical vegetarian. And for me, veganism, after I, I kind of, I'm an empath as a person. So I'm highly sensitive to emotions and feelings and stuff. And I tend to take on anything that bad is happening. I, I feel it, you know, and that can be humans. But for me, it was also with animals. When I found out the truth behind kind of the industries and all the stuff that was happening, I, I couldn't bear to be kind of complicit. Um, and that was kind of my main driver. But the great thing for me when I got into it was the health benefits and the energy benefits and the stuff that came with it just fitted my journey perfectly. Because, what? yeah, going back to like the um, the drinking thing, I tried to go vegan when I was 18. Okay, And back in those days, there were no vegans and there was not really much internet. So you, it, it was a very challenging time to do it. And then over the next two months, I would try and I would try and I would try. I would keep doing it for three months, six months, nine months, fall off the wagon you know, dairy, dairy, dairy. Um, and the funny thing was, I didn't realize like I got sober that my, my willpower when I was drinking, even when I was just drinking on a, on a, as a normal person drinks every day, no willpower, no weak in the mind, dude. You know, as soon as I got sober, I was like, I got sober. I was like, well, hang on, if I can get sober. And then I got off these, like, uh, as soon as I got sober, I was like, well, if I can do that, I can do anything. So, so I went vegan immediately at the same time. I was like, well, I can do the vegan thing at the same time. So I just cut that out. And after doing those two, I was like, well, and then I quit those antidepressants and I was like, holy fuck. And then the same year I quit smoking and then I quit caffeine and I just fucking rid it. I decided to rid my body of every toxin I could as much as I could. You know, I still, I still have treats, dude. I still have days where I binge on fucking sugar when I shouldn't, you know, but sure. not like that. I wanted to be as level as I could be at all times and maximize that. So for me going plant-based, um, it, it was interesting because like you, even though I wasn't a meat eater, I was a big dairy eater, dude. So I was, you know, back before that, it was lots of beer, pizzas, cheese and chips, all these kind of, you know, uh, things. So it was a very strange process for me, but I actually enjoyed it because going vegan forced me to relearn eating because I was like, well, what do I eat? Right. And I had to start, so I started cooking again and I started like buying ingredients and actually cooking meals and then all of a sudden I was opening up because I had to put effort in 
I was finding more things I enjoyed eating rather than less because I wasn't just picking up the same old crap in the oven and the microwave I used to eat. I was having to do proper food. Um, and then all of a sudden I started to notice my energy was going up and up and up. And then, so like now, for example, I intermittent fast every day. So I do 16, eight and I've done that for two and a half years. So explain um, 16, I, 16, all, meaning 16, you yeah, fast so eight, I fast for 16, okay. yeah, so I typically start eating between 2 and 4 p.m. on an average day, and then I eat for eight hours past that, so if I start at 2, I finish at 10, at 10 p.m. Okay, um, now do you keep that same time each day, do you, is that, is that an important part I, or no? I, I, you don't have to do it, I try to just because I like it, um, the main reason for me is I like, the, for me, I like fasting to late because I like eating, but what I've learned about my body is if I fast and when I hit that fasting period, whether it's 11 or 3 p.m., once you get into the mind where you're just not eating at that point, it, sure. I can go. Once I kind of break the seal, so once I've had that first meal, hunger kicks in for me and I'm hungry and then I'm training and I want to eat, 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 eat and get good calories in me. But if I do that at 8 in the morning or 9 or 10, I trigger the same process and then I've got the whole day to get through with the hunger. And for me, I'm no good at the end of the day trying to be disciplined enough to stop eating at six or eight because I've had my calories is a real tough challenge for me as opposed to skipping it in the morning and coming in strong I find much better um, right. but combining that with the plant-based stuff so I break my fast typically with a good fat salad like some with some falafels and avocado and stuff some again I've learned a lot about my body like I used to eat dude you saw my pitch I used to eat like shit man you know it was like crisps chips fries fucking just you know i had good food too but just i ate whatever i wanted like mcdonald's you know whatever egg mcmuffins just you name it dude um and the more healthier i kept getting the more my palate adjusted and all of a sudden i wasn't enjoying those crappy foods and what i then noticed was when i ate them if i went out and broke my fast with and i did it a couple of times to experiment i'd have like either a big white baguette full of something really rich and you know or a burger or whatever I would be within 30, 60 minutes exhausted. My eyes were stinging. I'm tired. Cause, and now I know what's happening to me. Is I'm having a blood sugar spike. It's spiking my blood sugar, my insulin, and I'm crashing. So once I started to notice those tips, because I became so obsessed with peak performance now, like I'm obsessed with, I want to be on all the fucking time. I want to be coming to work and just crushing it all the time. I want to do my workouts. I want to be, you know. So because I know that now, I've hit that point in my life where, because I've been such a fucking degenerate for so long, like now being peak performance is so important to me that I'd, I'm happy to break with the salad and eat the good foods all day and be on, 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 on. I'll have the treats when they when they fit, but I would rather be because I want to win in the business. Right. It's more important to me that the business wins and I get to do my business and my charity work than it is for me to eat the tasty, shitty foods and have that kind of day. You know. I get it. So, so yeah, the the plant based stuff was huge, and then, um, you know. When I cut the alcohol out, I went on to like lots of soft drinks first of all because I was trying to replace it, and then I was trying to make them healthier and healthier. Now I I I drink water all day every day. It's mainly it's probably ninety nine percent of what I drink is water or sparkling water. Sure, um, sure. I just don't put anything in it. I'm just and I love I love that feeling. I feel light all the time. I feel energetic all the time. You know, and uh, it's definitely done the business a lot of good. I think that is such great. I mean, you have really given me so much information today. So let's let's wrap up with um, with this. You know, what would you say um, has has been one of the most, um, I guess, defining points in your life? If you think back over the last, let's just say, ten years, yeah, what would you say has been one defining moment that pops out in your mind the biggest? 
Um, I think for me, where I'm at now is still getting, getting, deciding to be sober, making that decision where, like Ed and Tony will talk about it, where in life our behaviors are mainly driven by either trying to obtain pleasure or to avoid pain, you know? And for me, I got to that point where in that build-up to uh, sobriety, for me, with all the anxiety, the depression, the meds, the booze, the drink, the drugs, lots of like anxiety, depression, lots of suicidal thoughts all the time, you know, lots of shame because you'd get, you'd get annihilated and then you do stuff and then you wake up and you'd be like, what the hell did I do? And then you hate yourself for doing that stuff and then you go back into the cycle and then you use again and then you hate yourself for using right. so Lots of self-loathing. Um, for me, when finally when that pain was enough where I, I didn't, I couldn't take no more of that pain and I, and, I, and I must have hit that point where I didn't want to die and I was like, well, I've either got to do that or I've got to get sober and try this. Um, and that was, that was the pivot in, for me, that was the moment because not just getting sober and then being not doing those bad things or this that and the other it's self-awareness it i was numbing my mind i was numbing my emotions numbing my mind lowering my vibration when i stopped and all of a sudden over this journey where i've started to get more self-aware more emotionally locked in more spiritually aligned i just have grown into that massively and that's what's allowed me to do this you know so if i, I don't think if i did that i'd still be I was always me in my heart. Like everyone used to always say, oh, you're such a nice guy, you know? But I couldn't be consistent with the actions that aligned to my morals and principles, you know? So being able to just maintain that consistently has been a game changer. And then consistency has just been the key. You know, I don't do this anymore. I do it a little bit, but not in the scale where I used to do it, you know? Sure. So. That's fantastic. Phil, I cannot thank you enough for doing, Anytime, you know, having bro. this conversation, dude. I have learned so much today. And I think the cool. audience has uh, for sure learned more about these areas that nobody knows about so thank you so much i really appreciate it and uh i appreciate you having me on my pleasure awesome thanks brother thank you talk to you soon thank you for tuning into the successful life podcast We hope today's insights have ignited your passion and provided tools to shape your leadership journey. Remember, greatness is a journey, not a destination. Continue your pursuit by exploring more resources and insights over at CoreyBarrier.com. Until next time, keep leading, keep learning, and keep striving for excellence. Stay inspired and see you on the next episode.